Welcome to Vet Talk with Royal Canaan, where we address a, an array of topics relevant to veterinarians and veterinary clinics. I'm Brenda Andreessen, Co-Chief Executive Officer at Stevens Associates, and I am your host for this conversation. Joining me today to talk about feline behavioral health and urinary disease are Dr. Ann Ward, Scientific Services Veterinarian, Royal Canaan, North America. Welcome, Ann. Thanks, Brenda. Really excited to be here today. And also joining us is Dr. Um, Kelly St. Denis. She is a Master of Science Diplomate of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners and past president of the American Association of Feline Practitioners. Welcome. Thank you, Brenda. I am also very excited to be here. Well, we're going to dig into a really interesting topic here this afternoon, cats, who are notorious for being those complex, cryptic, really difficult to decode patients. And we know that optimal care with cats requires some strategic observation and a lot of education for both veterinary practitioners and their caregivers. Um, we're going to dig in a little bit to how feline behavior impacts each animal's urinary health and other environmental factors and differences that can help differentiate from sickness and wellness. So in this podcast episode, we're going to address the important connection between feline behavioral health and urinary health as veterinary clinics work to counsel their patients on the intersection of these factors within the lifestyles of their cats. So let's begin. Um, Kelly, talk with us a little bit about that critical role of the owner. Why is it important for them to understand the feline behavior and the urinary health connection? Yeah, so it is so critical for caregivers to understand that that link between behavior and urinary health and health in general. And I think gone are the days when we used to talk about cats being easy, you know, the easy pet to have where we didn't have to worry about them. We have such a better understanding of what their environmental needs are now and their emotional needs. And we really need to convey that to our caregivers as we start to understand better the role that the cat's environmental and emotional needs play in their physical health. So if things in their environment are not meeting their needs as a cat, then they very often can develop sickness behaviors, whether it be urinary or other health problems. So I had a cat who perpetually urinated outside the litter box. So, and was he just mad at me or was that tied to some kind of a medical or behavioral issue that I should have known about? <laughs> well, Brenda, that's a great question. And it's certainly a question that caregivers have brought to me when I was still in the clinic seeing cats every day. And, you know, believe it or not, I don't think your cat was mad at you. We know that urinating outside of the box, it can range from something like a normal behavior, like marking behavior, or it could be an indication that the cat's experiencing stress or illness or both. And as Kelly just alluded to, in cats, stress can be a trigger for a variety of sickness behaviors, including urinating outside of the litter box. And stress can even be a trigger for a specific urinary disease that cats get called feline idiopathic cystitis or FIC. So there you know, are a variety of things that may have been going on with your cat and, you know, it, it's really, you know, it's not the caregiver's fault that these things are confusing because many cat owners have not ever had an opportunity to learn about the really unique behavioral and environmental needs of their cat to understand is this behavior, that marking behavior, is this behavior a sign of illness or is this behavior a sign that their environmental needs just aren't being met? So this is what I think really where we get into the fascinating part of the conversation. I mean, and, and Kelly, 
And Anne, both, please jump in as we're having this conversation, you know, so to really truly be that discussion. But the whole idea of environmental risk factors, I think, is a new one to to too many pet owners, maybe to some veterinary practitioners, too. So how do we assess? How do we look at the environmental risk factors and, and address those? I think we now have a very good key to use when we talk to caregivers about what their cats need in their environment. So those risk factors and are based on deficiencies in those needs. And, and what we're talking about there is what's called the five pillars of a healthy feline environment. So we have these pillars outlined and we can work with caregivers to understand where in their environment there might be deficiencies um, and what they can do to correct those to help improve that cat's mental or emotional well-being, which will in turn improve their behavior and their physical health. So let's talk a little bit more in detail about what those those pillars are. So what are, you know, and the five pillars or categories that we need to have in mind? Absolutely. Um, You know, I love that the American Association of Feline Practitioners has done a such, you know, has done such a great job of taking what's a really complex topic and putting it in these five pillars or these five buckets to really help us, you know, run through a mental checklist around are the environmental needs of my cat being met. And so what these pillars are, are one, we need to provide a safe space for the cat. We can certainly talk more about what that is because I'm sure many of us are thinking, well, gosh, they live in my house. Isn't that a safe space? But there's more to it than that. And then of course we need to provide multiple and separate key environmental resources. And I think that multiple and separate, those two qualifiers are really, really important to keep in mind. It's not just that we have environmental resources, but that we have enough of them and that they are separate within the home. So the cat has that feeling of control in their environment. They can choose where they access these key resources. And just a quick example of a resource, of course, food, water, uh, litter boxes, perching places, hiding places, sleeping places. These are all examples of key resources. We also need to really remember that cats are both predators and prey. And one key thing is that they need to have a normal outlet for that behavior. So they need opportunities for play and predatory behavior in the home. They also need to have positive, consistent, and predictable human interaction. So um, that is one of those pillars, that positive, predictable interaction. If you have a routine with your cat and they know they can rely on you to, you know, feed them at a certain time and to, to have that time that you're sitting on the couch each evening reading, reading a book that they sit in your lap and they can really count on that routine, that really helps them feel, you know, comfortable in their environment. And then, of course, last but not least, that final pillar that we sometimes forget in terms of the feline environmental needs is to have an environment that respects the cat's senses. And in particular, I think we often forget about the importance of the sense of smell. You know, probably many of us like think about dogs as having a keen sense of smell. Well, cats also have a very keen sense of smell and they use smells to decode their environment and understand is this part of my safe territory or not? Is there prey around? Are there predators around? And if we hide those, you know, important smell cues, that can be a real problem for the cat. So Kelly, with those five pillars in mind, what is your recommendation to the veterinary practitioner when trying to help the pet owner, the cat owner understand how important those pillars are? How would you guide them through that so they can then explain that to the cat owner? 
As Anne noted, one of the key things to remind our veterinary team members is that cats are predator and prey. And as a prey species and a species that is considered asocial, so they don't normally interact with a lot of other cats out in the environment, all of these things are important for them to be in place. Otherwise, they do get disturbances in their system. So when I'm speaking with veterinary teams to try and guide them through this, again, we apply these pillars in terms of those things, the cat being a prey and a predator and the cat being asocial. So the good example, as Anne elaborated on a little bit there, was the pillar one in providing a safe space. We think, well, they're in our home, right? So they should feel safe. I have all the doors closed. But for a cat, that's not what they're perceiving. Their home is their territory. Maybe they go outside. Maybe they're just inside, but they also can perceive things outside of their home. So they may look out the window and see things that and other other animals that threaten their resources or potentially even their safety. And they don't understand that within the home that they're safe. So as a prey species, that's a problem. But even within the home, their own sense of safety can be harmed by things that are happening within the home. So people come and go unpredictably, noises, smells, and then we start to get into the other pillars. So we try to explain these things to veterinary team members in in this way, and they can convey the same message to the caregivers. It is more easy to understand, I think, when we think about it as the cat's basic, who the cat really is. I'm sure there are some great resources that are available both to the profession and to cat owners that might help us with that? Yes, absolutely. There are some really great resources for veterinary team members through the American Association of Feline Practitioners website, catvets.com. Specifically, the five pillars were first published in 2013 in the Feline Environmental Needs Guidelines, but you will see them in a number of our guidelines now from cat-friendly to senior guidelines. So our veterinary teams can find any of them there. The other thing is that for our caregivers, we can go to catfriendly.com and find a lot of information about cat care, as well as some brochures, including one on the feline environmental needs, which covers the five pillars. Those are great resources. I know that when I first found those resources, uh, I I was just blown away by the quality of them and and how useful they really are in day-to-day practice. So I highly recommend that anyone listening goes and checks those out. I love the catfriendly.com, especially I send all my caregivers there because it they're always updating it. It's always written by specialists in the fields that, of the topic that they're talking about. So it's just an amazing resource for, from so many levels. Yes, it really is. So circling back just a little bit to where we start talking about FIC and that being so common with all of this in mind, are some cats more susceptible relative to those environmental conditions than others? Well, I can jump in here and and say, yes, absolutely. You know, there's been a lot of research over the years on risk factors for FIC. And some of the risk factors actually relate directly to the cat's interaction with its environment. So, for example, there's a higher risk of FIC occurrence in cats who uh, do not display normal predatory behavior or have those opportunities for play and predatory behavior. And there's a higher risk in cats who, say, exhibit that hiding behavior when when strange people come to the home, you know, things of that nature. So so certainly there there is a link there. Um, and moreover, we know that that FIC is a condition that occurs in cats with an abnormal response to stress. So while a perfectly normal healthy cat might have a slightly higher ability to cope with stress 
the FIC patient really doesn't have a great ability to cope with everyday stress. And so if we provide an environment that's deficient and doesn't meet their needs, they're going to have a real struggle uh, staying healthy in that environment more so than a, than a ostensibly healthy cat. So how can, as a veterinary practitioner, a veterinary team member, how can I help to discern some of those things? How do I, when I see a cat that's presented and you suspect there might be some of those issues at play, what, what's, a, what's the best way to start that conversation? Well, you know, Kelly, you're still in the clinic these days, and I bet you're having these conversations every day. So I think this is a great question for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we always want to make sure when we'll talk about the medical aspect of it, because there potentially is going to be a medical concern with the cat. Maybe they do have a urinary tract disease like urinary crystals or a bladder stone. But when I start speaking with caregivers about what's going on with their cat, I will start to address the pillars indirectly by asking them questions about things like, for example, how many cats live in the household? Because a multi-cat household is a prime example of a place where a cat's not necessarily going to feel safe because their resources are potentially threatened and their safety might also be threatened if the cats don't get along. And so I do start asking questions around the pillars without actually, you know, saying, okay, I'm talking about pillar one, here's your question. Um, and we'll ask about litter boxes, which is again, pillar two with those multiple and separated key environmental resources. And I start working through these things gradually with the caregiver. And as you ask the questions, you can start to see the light bulbs going on. They see where you're going and they're starting to realize that the environment is what we're talking about. And I always seem to make it clear to them that this is not something to pick on them and say, you know, you did this wrong or you're doing this wrong. It's, you know, these things are things we all do with our cats, but there are situations, especially with cats with a deficiency and ability to, to respond to stress, where we actually need to address these things in a different way and be more in tune with what the cat needs. And so I'll just work them through the five pillars gradually with, with questions and, and then start to explain to them, hey, this is what I'm talking about. And then we, we work together to make sure we correct the deficiencies. So for example, you're using scented cat litter that's affecting the cat's sense of smell. Let's switch over to unscented cat litter. It can be as simple as that sometimes, right? Just having the discussion with them and having the light bulb go on in their mind. Mm -hmm. And they will, they will run with it. I mean, once they start understanding what I'm speaking of, they will actually go home and I send them, I have a litter box criteria, but a, a little criteria list of things that they should be doing in the home. I give them a, a copy of the five pillars and I communicate with people by email often. And they will say, Hey, since we talked to you, we did this, this, and this. And now oftentimes they'll tell me the cat actually has stopped house soiling or having episodes. So uh, it's amazing how these little tweaks in that environment and adjusting those deficiencies in the five pillars can actually make things much better. They don't always fix the problem, but they resolve a lot of the issues. And that's exactly what we're all looking for, right? I mean, what we can make sure these things don't continue to happen for sure. This has been great. So wish list time. If there was one thing you each wish that every cat owner knew about feline health and behavior from the perspective as a veterinarian, obviously, what would that one thing be? Oh, goodness. Well, for me, you know, it, it truly would be that every cat owner would, would understand that the home environment and the way that we interact with the cat can literally mean the difference between sickness and health. So I really 
do wish for a day when every cat owner is educated and knowledgeable around those feline environmental needs, because as Kelly mentioned, there are so many small, easy changes we can make in our home environment that can truly transform the health of that cat over the long term. I mean, that that's very well said, and I completely agree. Anne. And the other thing that I would say is that I would very much like caregivers to start thinking about their cats as an individual personality and respect that individual and allow them to have more control over their environment um, in terms of the things that they want to do and how they do it and not to interpret a cat's behavior as, as you said earlier, something that's, you know, they're mad at me or they're doing something because they don't like me, but rather that that's an individual expression of that cat's behavior. And there might be a reason for it that we need to investigate. Um, And I think, Again, the other thing I see with the pillar four in regards to respecting the cat as an individual is a lot of people will cuddle their cats or interact with their cats against the cat's desire. And that also can create a lot of anxiety. So we're really moving towards um, offering that cat opportunities to initiate the interactions on their own rather than having the caregiver do so. It's really exciting time in veterinary medicine now, right? With people actually beginning to understand Cats are different from dogs and they respond in in really different ways. This has been a fascinating conversation and we really appreciate your time to talk with us on Vet Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Brenda. And thanks so much, Kelly. Also, this has been fascinating and, and a really great conversation.